Fund. Right now, we turn our attention to political party financing. This is something that the B.C. government has convened a committee on to determine whether or not public financing of political parties should continue. Our guest says they absolutely should, but with some adult supervision. Max Cameron is a political science professor at UBC and a good friend of this program. Professor Cameron, Max, good morning, sir. Welcome to the program again. Thank you. Good morning, Sterling. It's uh, good to have you back with us, Max. And and the adult supervision you refer to as earmarks. Uh, talk to us about why there needs to be, uh, they don't get unfettered access to public funding. Right. So I agree uh, in principle with public funding because I think parties are essential to our democracy. But it does seem to me that we have an opportunity to uh, ask our political parties uh, when we provide them with public funds to spend them in a way that the public um, approves. Uh, As you know, a a lot of people don't like political parties, and uh, that's kind of a fortunate. I mean, it's understandable to to some extent. Um, We tend particularly to not like the parties that we don't identify with, but identification with parties generally is quite low, and politicians are among the least respected of professionals uh, in in our society. And and there are a host of reasons for that. Some of it has to do with the perception of negativity and and highly adversarial nature of of politics. But in fact, uh, these are These are an inevitable part of democratic politics and a lot of what parties do. For example, the work that they do in committees, uh, legislation, representation, the work that they do um, uh, in in building connections to local communities, their constituency organizations, and so forth. These are actually critical to the functioning of our democracies. And so it seems to me that if parties are saying to the public, hey, will you foot the bill for some of our activities? This is our chance as the public to say to them, sure, but we want to support the things that you do that really are constructive and contribute to the quality of our democracy. And of course, the, 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 that we do already have limitations here in British Columbia and elsewhere across Canada and at the national level as well, Max, in terms of amounts that individuals, corporations or interest groups like unions are able to donate and so on. We have a cap on that. And that's all because there's nobody in Canada, I don't believe, wants to see our political system turned into the U.S. system in which he or she who has the most money wins. That's not uh, that's not the Canadian take on democracy, is it? That's exactly right. And, and as you know, a few years ago, we began to get the reputation as the Wild West of uh, party finance, where yes. really there was just quite a, an extraordinary um, amount of fundraising and money going into our political system from a variety of sources, uh, often uh, individuals with deep pockets or corporations and, and unions. And so we, I think, wisely decided that that wasn't the path to go down. We looked south to the United States and we see what a complete disaster, the, um, uh, the basically unlimited private financing for parties has, has meant. I mean, uh, right. elections that cost more than the gross domestic product of small countries. Uh, that's not what we want to do, both because it's unnecessary, but also because it's undemocratic, and it leads to um, the, the creation of a kind of an oligarchy of very wealthy individuals who, who run our political system. If we want to avoid that, I think we do need to provide public funding for political parties. We can't just rely on parties raising um, monies from private uh, individuals or, or, or organizations. Um, and, and, uh, and so I think that there does need to be public funding with caps on the amount that can be spent during election time uh, sure. and with, as I said, some earmarks with respect to what's done with that funding. 
Yeah, interesting question and, and, and a good sort of balanced uh, approach to it, Max. I wanted to ask you, you talked about participation levels in the political process and party affiliation being at an all-time low. And it's, it's an odd combination because here we are in a hyper-partisan era when, uh, when, when greater numbers than ever are absolutely walking away from the political parties and the political process. So we're creating hyper-partisanship on one hand and mass apathy on the other. How do you square that circle? I know that's a really uh, fascinating uh, paradox. And, and, you know, um, there's been a, a lot of discussion of this in, among political scientists. So it, it may, you know, it may, may be that you don't want a, a political system where there isn't um, some degree of, of polarization because that can turn people off. But then if you get the kind of hyper uh, partisanship and uh, pernicious polarization that we have uh, seen in some contexts, and again, yeah. especially the United States, uh, that is very worrisome too, because we don't want people, you know, there's some research that shows right now um, that um, people, many people in the United States um, uh, feel more negatively toward other political parties um, than, than they do uh, to, with respect to, to race. In other words, you know, um, racism is not as strong at this point um, as um, as partisanship. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so really, it, it's a, there's a there's a kind of a negative, what people refer to as sort of negative effective partisanship, which is, a, I think, a very pernicious thing. We we do want to avoid that. So. My sense is that the the answer is to have robust political parties, parties that have roots into society, parties that have active riding associations. They're not mm-hmm. just PR vehicles for, for politicians. Um, and, and it become a place where people are interested in participating in politics. And, and for that, frankly, uh, th- there does need to be some investment in the party as an organization. Sure. But absolutely nothing wrong with that investment, uh, especially of taxpayer dollars, being followed up assiduously and accountability being a part of receiving the investment. Correct? Yes, exactly. I think that there does have to be some accountability. So the kinds of things that many European parties do uh, is that they provide public funding that is with strings attached. So it's, it's earmarked to activities like uh, youth training for politics or encouraging more women to run in politics or, or research budgets for, for parliamentarians. So, for example, uh, one of the problems with the way which party f- uh, funding works right now is that the monies, the check is cut directly to the party. The party leaders decide how to spend it. Mm-hmm. So I spoke with um, a member who once was one of uh, uh, once was a member of one of our major political parties who decided to sit as an independent. And what he told me was that one of the surprising consequences of sitting as an independent is suddenly got a lot more money to do yeah. the work of being an MLA because it was no longer, um, you know, the, the, uh, nobody the, was brokering the, the money. Party. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so I, I actually think that one of the things that we need to be thinking about is ordinary mem- members of the legislative assembly are engaged in a variety of activities that do require them to have staff, that do require them to do research, that do require them to do outreach. For example, one of the kinds of things that I'd like to see our members of the Legislative Assembly do more of is, is reach out to local indigenous communities and build better relationships with them. So it does seem to me that it makes sense to provide public funding, not not 
just for, to be taken by the political party centrally, but that funding, uh, if it were to trickle down to the ordinary members of the Legislative Assembly, that could actually improve their functioning as legislators uh, and overall the functioning of the legislature. No question about it. And it's a pretty safe bet that the committee of the legislature studying whether or not this uh, this funding process should continue is likely to give it uh, a thumbs up and absolutely. But it's uh, it's the supervision component that is uh, still debatable. Professor Cameron, Max, great to speak to you again. Uh, positive suggestions for our politicians. Let's see what they do with them. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me on. It's Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith, who will return to this chair. I checked with him over the weekend. He'll be back tomorrow morning, just in time for Phase 2. And, of course, we'll hear about the official announcement regarding Phase 2 in just over an hour's time. Premier Horgan and a a large cast of uh, well-known provincial uh, politicians and uh, ministers and officers of health will be uh, joining the Premier to make that announcement. We'll have it for you right here on CKNW. A little later on in the day... Hockey fans from coast to coast to coast will be reveling in a Montreal Canadiens third round of the playoffs game down there in the desert against the Las Vegas Golden Knights. Rob Williams is with us. Rob is the sports editor with Vancouver's Daily Hive. Rob, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sterling. Anytime. Well, hey, I, I made an, a, a remark going into the break, Rob. If you'd put two bucks back in, what, April or March or whenever the season got underway, this uh, truncated, weird second COVID season, when we got underway, if you'd gone down and, and put a $2 bet on the Montreal Canadiens making it to the third round of the Stanley Cup Finals against the Las Vegas Golden Knights, you'd be a pretty wealthy man this morning on that two-buck bet, wouldn't you? Yeah, they, to say the least, they did not look good down the stretch. Uh they were kind of limping into the postseason. They lost five in a row. Uh, they had ton, a, a ton of trouble against the um, against the Toronto Maple Leafs, and uh, not many people gave them a chance to uh, get out of that round. Um, I do think my view of the, of the Habs is, is skewed a little bit, just because they played the Canucks so well. So I mm. mean, the, the times that where I was watching them most closely, like they looked like a pretty a pretty decent team, and I. I must say, like, on paper, I think that they have, you know, they have the depth. They have young players that can, you know, kind of rise to the occasion and maybe maybe uh, be a little bit better than people are giving them credit for. And, of course, they've got Carey Price, who, who, when he's on, and he seems to always be on in the playoffs, yeah. uh, makes them a really tough team to beat. And, of course, they got Jake Allen backing up Carey Price just in case, and that's not a bad situation. Rob, I was going to ask you this morning, we were talking, you were talking about the Winnipeg Jets, and, and in that four-game four straight sweep series, the Canadians lost one of their players in the first game. Mark Shifley knocked out Evans, who is said to have made the road trip to Vegas with the team. Do you expect him to play? No, he won't be playing tonight, uh, I don't believe. Uh, he's just returned to the ice. I don't believe he's practiced with the team yet. So okay, I, so just skating then so far. Yes, he, skated, he did an off-ice workout, and then he skated on his own. And, of okay. course, he's got a concussion, so he's, he's got to pass the – you've got to go through the steps of um, – all the different steps on, on recovering from a concussion. So I wouldn't expect him back uh, yet, but uh, certainly those are good signs uh, that he's back on the ice. 
Absolutely. So now, of course, there's a heat wave going on in the desert. So you get off the plane, your charter flight from Montreal, and the temperature is about 110 degrees at McCarran Airport in Vegas. It, it's, it doesn't feel very much like hockey weather, but you know, I, I don't think they're going to care a great deal because I must ask you, Rob, just flat out, given the, uh, the weird nature of the season and the structure of the divisions and the way the playoffs have unfolded, it's, it's odd, very odd. For example, Tampa now playing against the Islanders, a team they haven't seen in, in a very, very long time. But my point is the quality of the competition and the entertainment value is sky high. This is a brilliant year to be a hockey fan, don't you think? Absolutely. And I think the, I mean, the big, you know, the big thing for me now is the fans being back. And that yes. is just, um, you know, neither you or I are in, are in any of these buildings, but watching on television, boy, what a difference it makes to the entertainment value. Um, I think especially the fans and the New York Islanders fans have just been outstanding. I mean, they mm-hmm. are, they are as passionate as they come. Uh, you're going to see in, in Vegas. I mean, they're, they've lived a spoiled existence, but they can get very loud. So that's one of the loudest rinks in, in the league. I think it's going to be interesting to see how the Montreal Canadiens react to the to the crowd because I think agreed. Normally, normally we we view that as a, a, a an advantage for the home team, but I think that Montreal. I mean, they've they've played in front of twenty five hundred fans in Montreal, and they've you know really made a, a difference. I think even just even just twenty five hundred, I think made a difference in Montreal. But they're going to be absolutely jacked to step onto an ice in in Las Vegas, where they have you know they're full crowds now with no masks, full crowds. They're they're just letting it rip. So uh, eighteen thousand one hundred and forty nine. Exactly. I, I think they're going to be absolutely jumping to start this game. Uh, they're going to be excited to be in front of a crowd like that, no doubt. I agree, and it'll be interesting to see if uh, the Quebec government uh, gives them any leniency and allows more people into the Bell Centre for games three and four later in the week. But you're right, it's going to be a really, really loud and I think hugely entertaining first game tonight. Rob, enjoy the game. Thanks very much for taking a few moments to help us set it up as if we needed to be more tuned up for more rounds of playoffs. (laughs) Thanks for this. Great to talk to you again. Anytime. And welcome back. It's Sterling Fox in from Mike Smith on this Monday morning. And a quick reminder here, the CKNW Kids Fund is hosting an online auction at cknwkidsfund.com. Today is your last chance to bid. We uh, cut things off at noon. So there's still a couple of hours left to uh, check out 50 items, actually over 50 items available at the website. All the money raised goes to providing kids with mobility equipment, assistive technology, and therapies they need to thrive. You have until noon today. And again, that website address is cknwkidsfund.com. Always a pleasure to welcome this guest back to our program. Jason Tetro is a microbiologist and host of the Super Awesome Science Show, here to talk to us more this morning about vaccines. Jason, welcome back. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be joining you. So let's talk a little bit about second shots because we have, mm-hmm. uh, and you and I th- have talked about this a little bit. And I'll give you, a, I'll give you a personal example. Uh, there's a young man in my life, Jason. He's my oldest son. He's mid thirties. He had his first AstraZeneca shot. I'd say about six or seven weeks ago at a pharmacy, as was recommended at the time. Fine, he's all happy mm-hmm. and good to go. And now it's time for the second shot. Except. Unlike the first shot, where he was instructed to go to a pharmacy for an AstraZeneca shot, he's now being told he can shop. 
he can do this or he can choose <laughs> that or what. And uh, frankly, he's quite upset. He's quite annoyed, uh, not at having to oh. choose or he's annoyed at, at the change in instructions in the moving of mm-hmm. the goalposts. That's what's really bugging him. He'll get a second shot of whatever and make a decision he doesn't want to have to make. And, and this is mm-hmm. he's not the only person in British Columbia that's a little miffed and more than a little confused, perhaps, Jason, by suddenly their ability sh- to shop when they weren't expecting right. to have to. And honestly, this has to do with one very, very small thing. And that is in the AstraZeneca vaccine, we have seen a very, very, very small population based uh, side effect, but it's a pretty nasty one. It, it's basically clotting and that can lead to problems. And unfortunately it can also lead to, to death. So as a result of that, What has happened is that there have been studies that have looked at what we call heterologous prime boosting. You don't need to memorize that. And -hmm. what it means is essentially you you get one vaccine and then you get the another type of vaccine as your second dose. All right. And what we've learned from this is that you can actually do this type of interchangeability and still have the same level of protection. So the only reason that this whole issue has come up is as a result of that very, very small, uh, you know, very rare side effect. Right. Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to shop? Well, I say this, follow alphabetical order. You start with AstraZeneca, right? Now you can stay with AstraZeneca, A to A, which is fine. But if you have AstraZeneca and you don't want to have it again, well, you can go to Moderna or you can go to Pfizer. You're going Pfizer, up, right, okay. up the uh, the alpha, alphabet. However, right. you can't go backwards. So if you get Pfizer, you can't go backwards to AstraZeneca. You got to gotcha. stick with Pfizer or Moderna. Yeah. Okay. I, I suppose, though, uh, the, the, the confusion, uh, and it, it came up a few weeks ago with the National Advisory Committee and all of that, the confusion simply was uh, up until, and you and I have had this conversation many times over the past year and a half, you know, the mm-hmm. advice was, and always has been from the get-go, when your turn comes and they offer yeah. you a vaccine, you take whatever it is because they're all equally effective in terms of your uh, uh, protecting you from COVID-19. That's always been the instruction, and it's just very recently that it's it's been changed, and it, it's caused a, a little con- more than a little confusion, I think, Jason, to be honest with you. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people are perplexed and confused. Yeah, and that is unfortunate because in the messaging that has been gone that's been going on, the one thing that never really got said from NASI or from the government, and the only person who actually ever said it was Dr. Bonnie Henry, is that there's actually a blood test that you can get to be able to find out whether or not you are at risk of this particular side effect for AstraZeneca. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. But nobody knew about that. And so what ended up happening is that you have one group, which is essentially saying, you know, the, the one that's offered to you is the one that you get. And another group that is saying, well, we know that this side effect possibly exists. And as a result, there's been sort of a, a lack of, um, you know, harmony. And that led to a lot of confusion. Yeah. What I've essentially tried to say is that um, if you've never had a problem with heparin, before, then you're not going to have a problem with the the vaccine. If you don't have any kind of autoimmune condition, then you're not going to have a problem with this vaccine. Right. But 
you should always be making sure that you're talking with your doctor in order to be able to make sure that you are not in that realm of someone who could be susceptible to those clots. Okay. That's, that's essentially Mm. where the messaging should have ended. But because of the fact that we now are wondering whether or not people who got the AstraZeneca should get the second dose, that's when the mixing and matching interchangeability started becoming an issue. And of course, now the UK and the Spain studies are both showing that you definitely can do that, but it has to be that one way, alphabetical order, not bad. Okay. You can only go one way. You can't go in reverse. And that's important to remember. Jason, we're at a point in British Columbia. And of course, the big announcement's coming up in less than an hour now with respect to the reopening here of of phase two tomorrow with the premier and Dr. Henry and others uh, scheduled to make a live uh, announcement of that fact in, Mm -hmm. in less than an hour. But here in BC, we're now at a point where we're actually giving more people second doses then we are mm-hmm. first doses because of a very successful, so far, first dose campaign. So now uh, you're, you're speaking to a fully vaccinated human being here this morning, Mr. Tetro. As, as mm-hmm. of a week ago, I had my second Pfizer. So now I, I have some questions for you about those of us who are in the process of getting that all-important second shot. And mine, by the way, was nine weeks to the day from my first one, as opposed to the recommended three weeks. Nonetheless, I'm there. So what does that mean for a person who's now fully vaccinated, assuming I wait the two week period for the vaccine to take, then I'm good. Do I have to, do I still have to wear a mask when I, when I go to uh, public uh, gatherings, malls, places like that? Yeah. So until we have that critical elimination threshold, which is about 65 to 70% of people with uh, two doses, uh, and I'll get to that in a second, then you really should be using all the same um, protocols to be able to prevent the spread. Now, granted, as someone, I'm I'm also, by the way, second dosed, I'm now two weeks past, and I'm just like, okay, good for you, you know, yeah, but I'm still wearing my mask. Um, But essentially, what happens is that, um, the virus can still get inside of you and possibly circulate inside of you, but it's only going to be in very, very, very low numbers. And then mm-hmm. if you happen to come into sort of this kissing distance from somebody, very, very close contact, you might be able to spread it over to them. Very, very small chance. But the fact is, is we want to make sure that we're doing that until we have that elimination threshold. So it may seem odd for you after 15 days, after two doses, to still be wearing a mask. But mm. I would recommend that we continue doing that until we get the general all clear and then we can all take our masks off. Yeah, and I think it's a safe bet, of course, that public transit and air uh, air travel, those sorts of things, people are going to be yeah. required to wear masks no matter how many vaccines you've had. That's just uh, that's just the protocol for those particular carriers. Mm. And if you want to ride, you wear a mask. If you don't want to ride, you're not you don't wear a mask. You're not going anywhere. That's pretty easy to understand. I guess it's the long overdue sense of whew, that all of us are mm-hmm. feeling that you just want to shuck that mask and go, yay, it's back to normal, oh, yeah. but it's not. And it's not anywhere near it yet, is it? Well, not, well, no, actually it is near. Uh, I, I've always been predicting that it's going to be the civic long weekend in August okay. where we start to shed the masks. And, you know, I, I, back in April of last year, I think I said that it would probably be around August 11th that we would call it off here in Canada. But anyway, um, the thing is that, would the one dose strategy actually would have worked and we probably would have been able to sort of take the masks off and all of that uh, earlier. But the problem is that Delta variant yeah. is getting past or breaking through uh, that, that one dose. And as a result of that, we have to be even more cautious and more careful 
until we have the second doses. And all you have to do is look over to the UK right now. I mean, they've done a fantastic job of getting all the people the first doses, and that Delta is just flying through them right now. It's just that's right. It's it's the one variant we did not want, and unfortunately, it happened. And now we have to be absolutely. Um, pristine in our ability to get as many people double dosed as we can so that we don't even have to worry about that particular variant. It's Sterling Fox in for Mike Smith on this cloudy Monday morning, cloudy and mild. They're saying we even have a thunder shower later in the day. And of course, there's that smoking red hot hockey game coming up later in the day. Jason Tetro is with us uh, from the Super Awesome Science Show. He is a microbiologist. He is here to take your calls as we talk about vaccines and variants and all the details uh, leading up, of course, to the announcement later this morning from the Premier and Dr. Henry about phase two. Let's go to the phone lines. Moni and Maple. Ridge. Good morning. Good morning. Go ahead to Jason Tetro, please, Moni. Uh, my question, uh, good morning, guys. My, my, my question is, uh, I've had the AstraZeneca, and I'm, I'm at a kind of crossroads like I'm sure most people are. Um, what, what do we do down the road if we have to have, um, you know, next year they're going to have a booster shot? So uh-huh. Is it going to be that type of mm-hmm. shot down the road or... You know, so eventually, am I going to have to have the mRNA? I don't know. My question is that. That's a very good question, too. Jason, what do you know about that? Booster shots. So, yes, we we are looking at possibly having booster shots down the road. And may I just say how comforting it is that people are asking questions about down the road instead of right now? Anyway, um, so... The, the, the vaccines could be going through a few changes until we get to the universal version that's going to be able to eliminate this virus entirely. In okay. the process, though, what we've learned is that if you have either been infected with the virus or you've had one particular type of dose and then you have uh, a, another different type of a vaccine, it's not going to have any problems. So get whichever two, um, the, the, the prime and the booster that you wish. And then after that, it won't matter down the road, whichever one comes out for the booster. I imagine it's most likely going to be an mRNA most likely as well from Pfizer. But again, mm-hmm. I mean, this is something that we will see down the road. And it'll all be, all of the f- variables will be factored in. So if you had an AstraZeneca or a Moderna, a uh, couple of rounds in the first year, whatever the brand of booster we all will take going forward, yeah. all of those variables will have been factored in. So it will be safe for everyone. Yeah. And I think we've sort of seen a little bit of that over the last 18 months. Um, You know, we heard about all these varieties. I think there were 200 and some different types of vaccines, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson. And we know that there's other ones down the road, but at the end of the day, only one or two of these companies have really stepped up to the plate in terms of their supply. They've really been able to make sure that we're always getting a certain amount and they've had no real troubles when it comes to their supply management or Mm -hmm. to potential after side effects as we've seen. And so when you think about it from that perspective, you kind of have to, you know, mathematically assume that Pfizer is going to be the one we're going to see down the road. I'm not suggesting that it will be, but I mean, that's the one to bank on at this point. Yeah. Back to the phone lines to Port Coquitlam this time. Florence, good morning. Hi, good morning. I had Moderna as my first shot. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, having a Pfizer for my second shot 
is safe. But I was wondering, are there any uh, studies, statistics on whether there's a difference in effectiveness of having two moderns, oh, Moderna, sorry, or a Moderna plus a Pfizer? Uh, so there hasn't really been any type of uh, studies done on that. And, and I'm just going to let you in on a little secret here. Moderna and Pfizer are almost the same. They actually mm-hmm. both come from the same originator, which is the University of British Columbia, believe it or not. And so they have some few differences in terms of their intellectual property and how they're developed. But for the most part, they're basically the same thing when it comes to the mRNA being produced in your body, leading to an immune response. So in that light, I think that if you want to go with Pfizer instead of Moderna, I don't think that there's going to be a problem. But again, I mean, if you're offered Moderna and you had it for the first dose, then yeah, go for it. Okay, let's see if we can get another call in here. We're in South Surrey next. Denise is on the line. Denise, good morning. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to know, um, I have a daughter that doesn't want to get vaccinated. And my husband and I are going to be double vaccinated pretty quick. And uh, if they want to come and stay with me with their two kids unvaccinated, and I have in-laws that are in in their 80s and a mother that's in her 80s mm-hmm. how safe is that uh not <laughs> sorry uh but the, the the reality is that um if you've been vaccinated especially double vaccinated then you have that protection right. but if you've only had the one dose then you're not protected against delta and if you've had no doses well then you're not protected at all And when you're dealing with individuals who are elderly, as we have seen time and time again, they are the ones who tend to end up having the most severe symptoms. So until we have eliminated this virus and you're seeing zero cases in British Columbia for at least a month, Mm -hmm. there's no way that you should be risking it. That's basically why we are trying to get as many people vaccinated as possible. And so you know, unless you have a reason not to be such as, you know, immunocompromisation or some other issue, uh, such as, you know, an allergy or something, um, you know, just just saying that you don't want to get it is is simply not enough. And it's not going to give you the opportunity to hug anyone until we are much further down the road from this virus. Welcome back to the program for Monday morning. I'm Sterling Fox in for Mike, who will be back tomorrow in this chair. The U.S. Passenger Vessel Services Act goes back to 1886, and it legislates that American cruise lines must dock at a foreign port between two U.S. ports. The United States, as we well know, has passed a temporary law allowing cruise ships to bypass Canada due to the pandemic. And one of the main reasons is, of course, because Canada has banned cruise ships until next year because of COVID concerns. Now, we have a move by the junior senator from Utah, Mike Lee, to take that temporary law allowing cruise ships to bypass Canada and make it permanent. This could impact the Canadian cruise ship industry uh, enormously. And by the way, the value to our economy uh, from cruise ships visiting our province on an annual basis is close to $3 billion. So what is BC set to do about this by way of attracting cruise ships back to our ports. Joining us now uh, is Rob Fleming, the Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure, also the MLA for Victoria Hillside. Minister, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Sterling. 
That's a pleasure, Rob. So let's, um, Premier Horgan says uh, this unexpected move, and it is from the senator from Utah, to turn yeah. this temporary condition into a permanent one is something no one could have foreseen. Have you heard the same sorts of things from people in the cruise ship business as well? I think there is some head scratching, uh, wondering why um, a senator from Utah would uh, care about uh, access to the coastal oceans. Uh, not not like Utah has any role in in the cruise ship industry. Um, this isn't the first time that uh, there have been senators like uh, this individual who've sought to overturn the the heart of the the Jones Act. Um, so you know, Canada has weathered this before but i guess what's concerning is that we're all trying to build back our economies including sure. our tourism economies in the wake of covid we we do that best by working together i mean the cruise ship industry as you mentioned uh has developed into a very strong sailing season here on our coast and up to alaska by offering a two-nation experience by mm-hmm. uh you know sequencing port investments that you see in seattle and vancouver and here in my community of Victoria, uh, all the way up to Alaska, it, it, that's what the traveling public wants. Um, I suspect that there's, you know, who knows what's going on here. Uh, I, I do know this senator has his sights targeted on Mexico as well, and the Caribbean, and the Hawaiian cruise industry. So whether he'll get any support um, is, is is an open question. But what I do what I do think what we need is is, is Canada to leverage its strong bilateral relationship. You know, the prime minister has said that. Uh, he has a very good relationship with with President Biden. Uh, this should be on the agenda when he gets back from the G7, where we we know that he's meeting with our premier and he'll be meeting with uh, first ministers from across the country because our friends in Quebec and Nova Scotia share the same concerns. Sure, uh, yes. they want to see uh, Montreal and Halifax continue to be connected with the Eastern Seaboard uh, in the U.S. and have a cruise uh, product there. So can we just uh, distinguish, Rob, for a moment between the cruise ships that will be most likely to take advantage of this, we don't have to stop in BC anymore, Mm -hmm. twist to the Mm -hmm. plot, versus those cruise lines that will ignore said uh, uh, adjustment to the law and continue to come to BC because it's just a flat-out great destination for cruising people. Yeah, yeah, well, look, I mean, the cruise industry has taken a real hammering on revenues. They have lost, uh, you know, almost all of 2020 uh, uh, cruising season, uh, most of 2021. They're they're trying to recover whatever they can uh, in, in different parts of the world. Um, they're going to want to go where they can sell um, bookings. Um, sure. they, they, what they would like from Canada is a little more certainty about when our ports will be open again. And we, we sympathize with that view. And we've, I've spoken to the minister of transportation in Ottawa about that. We need a strong signal. Um, I also think the U S center for disease control has, has a pretty thoughtful set of guidelines, the type of guidelines that you would expect from a Dr. Henry or Dr. Tam. We've, we've reopened, you know, dozens and dozens of industries made safe workplace protocols happen. And that's what you see with the uh, U.S. CDC, um, what they call conditional sailing certificates. Right, now, yes. they're, they're, just, they're just getting running. It's very early days. The prime minister has said he's going to update the country on the land border question uh, mm-hmm. later this month. And I think uh, Premier Horgan was right to say, look, we've got to deal with the marine border at the same time. You know, send out at least a signal uh, about uh, whether that order will stand or whether there is a date given the vaccine progress in both of our countries and uh, you know, whether we can have a public health led science led process to have, 
to salvage as much of the cruise season as we can. Um, you know, that those are the kinds of questions that we we want uh, Ottawa to uh, to take to the United States, uh, not just in relation to this legislative effort, but in terms of decisions that they make under federal jurisdiction about our borders. But also, what sort of influence do you have on ports like uh, the Port of Vancouver, the Port of Victoria, and so on? Because we're hearing that these ports are considering raising their docking fees at a time when we hardly need to give anyone an excuse not to come here. Uh, What can you tell us about that? Well, we don't have a tremendous amount of influence. That's a federally delegated authority. Um, But we do do have, you know, a, a strong relationship with the Port of Vancouver. Um, I've spoken to them about this cruise ship industry. I've also spoken to them about um, international trade during the pandemic. Um, you know, it's a very successful port. It's the number sure. one port by by a long way in Canada. It's essential to uh, every uh, provincial economy and territorial economy in the country. It's also, um, you know, a, a gateway to the United States economy through our rail system. So um, the growth that the port has experienced is, is tremendous. Um, but everybody has to be sensitive to each other. That means, uh, you know, shippers and port authorities, uh, as we rebuild the economy, uh, we need to uh, have more certainty, not less, about what the costs of building back better is, is going to look like. Yeah. Well, now you talked about the, the personal relationship between uh, Trudeau and Biden, who finally have actually mm. met in person because the it's all been mm. Zoomed up until right. this weekend. Right. So now yeah. that's going to get firmed up a little bit more, which may indeed accelerate the ability of the two countries to negotiate uh, better or, or more fluid arrangements going forward, especially with the matter of both marine and land and air borders, for that matter, being reopened. Yeah, that's right. I'm just curious, though, how much uh, were the United States to go forward with this law and successfully pass it? What percentage mm-hmm. of cr- the cruise industry do you think would say, fine, OK, we don't care. We're going to dock in Vancouver or Victoria anyway, because, as you say, yeah. they're 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 hard up for passengers. They're looking to to please people by taking them to places where they want to go. If sure. enough people want to go to Vancouver, there'll be a cruise ship company. They'll be happy to take them there. So what percentage yeah. of the cruise biz do you think is going to hang in and go to Vancouver anyway? Well, I hate to go there because I think we need to put all our efforts into diplomatic channels right now. I think it's, you know, when we get over the pandemic, we, we, we need some status quo certainties to rebuild our tourism economies. But certainly Absolutely. you've heard from the Alaskan senators that introduced the temporary bill that they always wanted it to be temporary. They just wanted to be able to get on with having Americans be able to get to another part of America, in this case, sure. their state. And um, I think perhaps the, the answer to your question is, is it, it's significant. Um uh, the demand for uh, Victoria and BC. I mean, we were on a very impressive growth trajectory before the pandemic. I think in 2019, mm-hmm. yes, we saw well over a million boardings. We saw um, uh, 300 plus sailings here in Victoria. Uh, 22% rate of growth on the cruise ship industry year over year from 2018. So, the demand uh, is there. I think Canada's reputation is a safe place, a well managed place. Uh, that kept its citizens safe during the greatest challenge uh, in, in a century is only enhanced. So the attractiveness of this country uh, and our international reputation, I think, has grown uh, through the pandemic. Um, and uh, it goes back to the question, um, how do we help each other? The United States and Canada are, are strong trading partners. Um, we have shared history, shared borders. The discussion right now amongst Americans and Canadians who are connected by family ties and friendships 
is about when can we see each other safely. That's the discussion we're having uh, right now. In fact, I see Dr. Henry is and the Premier are updating on, um, uh, you know, re- uh, reducing some restrictions and allowing bigger right, gatherings yeah. in BC. So we're getting there. And this discussion is really, really important. Um, I can't say which date that will be the Prime Minister's decision, but I do know that uh, my counterpart, the Minister of Transportation in Ottawa, said we value your views. And the provinces, they, they want a pan-Canadian approach, and that's great. And I think we're getting there. And uh, I look forward to the update because I think if there is any animosity from the states, um, Canada's uh, assurances and our, our levels of medical safety now from COVID, our vaccine rates, is, is going to help us get to the same place. They were, of course, ahead of us in the vaccine race for a long time. Uh, but now our countries are uh, getting to a much safer place, and we're, both of us are seeing case counts go down dramatically and uh, you know, starting to return to normal and try and recover something uh, of, of a good summer.